Well, good evening and welcome. My name is Michael Willis. I'm one of the fellows here at the Middle East Centre here at St Anthony's. I'm very, very pleased to welcome you here to this event this evening. I'm very pleased for a number of, of reasons. Firstly, it's great to have an event focused on the country of Yemen. We here at the Middle East Centre try generally to look at all parts of the Middle East and North Africa, which is our remit certainly here at St Anthony's. But we're very aware that we have historically uh, rather neglected Yemen. Yemen, as I'm sure many of you here uh, tonight know well, is a fascinating uh, and unique country in its own right, but is also a state that is increasingly important and influential in its wider region of the Arabian Peninsula and the broader uh, Middle East. I think many of us who are less familiar with Yemen have often thought of a country as a rather sort of quixotic island, largely unconnected to the rest of the region. But as we have seen, unfortunately largely tragically uh, over recent years, and, and particularly of course over recent months, the country is far from isolated in the region, uh, and having had a significant impact beyond its borders, as indeed we've seen graphic very, very dramatically um, illustrated over the recent months. It therefore underlines the imperative of understanding Yemen as a country, its complex history and character, and sadly also its challenges and problems. Uh, it is therefore very timely to have an event focused on Yemen and one of its most important challenges, that of water. The second reason I'm very pleased this evening is to be welcoming our guest speaker tonight, Christopher Ward. It is wonderful to have Christopher speak here tonight since he has a long connection here. Not just with Oxford, where he completed his undergraduate degree at St John's College, not just at St Anthony's, where he did his MPhil degree, but most importantly of all, through his completion of the MPhil in Modern Middle Eastern Studies, which is the flagship degree of the uh, Middle East Centre. And therefore, if he allows us, uh, we would like the, the Middle East Centre to therefore lay claim to Christopher as very much one of our own, over and above St John's and St Anthony's. The Middle East Centre is really where you, where you belong. Now, after finishing his degree here with, with us here, Christopher made good use of his studies and worked in a region with the British Council in Saudi Arabia and then working in Iran and Somalia. Then, in 1980, he joined the World Bank where he was to spend the next 23 years working predominantly on natural resource management uh, and development and rural development in the Middle East and Africa, a position that took him to Kenya, Madagascar, Morocco and Yemen. Since leaving the bank, he has continued to write and publish on a wealth of subjects relating to the resources and economy of the wider region. For his latest book, Christopher has focused on Yemen, uh, the water crisis in Yemen, managing extreme water scarcity in the Middle East, uh, is the first comprehensive, and we can see from the size of it, it is very comprehensive, <laughs> the first comprehensive study of a water management crisis in Yemen, a, a crisis that those who know the country well warn others that will actually ultimately uh, probably dwarf um, even today's substantial political crisis in the impact it could have on the country and its people. It is therefore a great honour to have Christopher with us today to present and talk about his wonderful and timely new book. Christopher. 
Well, Michael, thank you so much for that super generous introduction. I, in fact, um, I was going to mention this question of appropriation by the Middle East Center because... It's done. You can't change it. <laughs> no, but it's something which gives me enormous pleasure. I, when I humbly asked Eugene Rogan, who's the director of the center, and who's unfortunately not able to be here tonight, whether it would be possible at the limit to have my book launch here, he immediately replied, Chris, you're one of ours. <laughs> and it was just such a feeling of belonging that I got from that, that uh, and a great feeling of happiness too. So a huge thank you to Middle East Centre, to Eugene, to Michael for agreeing to, um, to chair this session. Big <coughs> thanks to Takaya and to all the staff of St Anthony's uh, for their support. And I'd also like to mention the three people who are here tonight um, who've given me enormous help in thinking through and in writing this book. First, uh, Professor Tony Allen, doyen of Middle East Water Specialists, who agreed about 15 years ago to have me uh, on a sabbatical at SOAS and who very kindly read through the first draft proposal for this book. I think that was about 14 years ago. <laughs> so it's been long in the gestation, and I hope, Tony, you find that it's, uh, that it's worth it. Second, I'd like to thank Helen Lackner, who first aroused my interest in water in Yemen in the mid-1990s, when we worked together on a study of local water management in the Tayez area. She's continued to inspire and to help and to challenge me ever since. And I should say that both Tony and Helen have very kindly agreed to be discussants of this talk so that uh, when I finish they all add a few words in uh, commentary and critique. And finally I'd like to thank uh, Jeremy Burkoff, my old colleague from the World Bank, whose conceptual work on water resources management in the Middle East was an early inspiration and who challenged me when he said there is no territory in the world, with the possible exception of Israel and a couple of United <laughs> US states, that has ever recovered control over groundwater uh, once it's been lost. So this is the big challenge that uh, Yemen is facing, and it's almost unparalleled in the world. And thank you to Jeremy for putting his finger on it. Let me say at the outset that this book was written under another sky. It was written in a more settled period uh, for Yemenis, and it was completed at a time when the Arab Spring was bringing some, some hope for a fairer, juster Yemeni society. Now everything's in turmoil, and it's impossible to predict the outcomes. This talk doesn't attempt to speculate. It supposes that at some stage, peace and some semblance of good governance will emerge, and that at that time, Yemenis can recover control over their most precious resource, water. So what I'm going to say may not be immediately applicable, but as Fleetwood Mac say, never stop thinking about tomorrow. What can Yemeni people do to ease their water crisis? The question is essentially how to manage water sustainably and equitably in a very, very dry country with exceptionally low standards of governance. Essentially, it's the story of how serious water problems have developed for the Yemeni people, of how the Yemeni government has proved incapable of resolving these problems, and in fact, how the Yemeni government has often made things worse. But it's also the story of how Yemeni people at the local level have shown that they may have the capacity to take the situation back into their own hands and to resolve their own problems at the local level. The theme of localism, 
and of participation runs throughout the story. So what are you going to hear about? There's an emblem of water shortage. Ladies waiting, I don't know how many hours, to fill up those uh, water carriers. It's a story in essentially in four parts. First, it's the story of the resource and its setting, the story of a dry land, naturally decentralized, but with a long tradition of sustainable water management. Second, it's the story of water crisis, how that dry land has gone through four decades of rapid change and modernization, and how, as a result, pressing problems with water have emerged. Third, it's the story of the largely unsuccessful solutions applied to date. And finally, it's a question, what can happen next? How can Yemenis build on their traditional strengths to recover control over the situation? So first, what is the nature of the resource? Yemen is a very dry land. Despite its age-old reputation as Green Arabia, the country is nonetheless one of the world's most water-scarce countries in relation to the size of its population. There is generally low rainfall of the monsoon type, lots of arid and semi-arid areas. Although rainfall is quite high in the mountains, the hot, dry climate quickly evaporates most of it. Only one-twentieth of the rain which falls on Yemeni territory is captured in groundwater or in stream flow. There are no permanent rivers of any size. Uh, the wide bodies lie dry for most of the year, but here you see an occasional spate flow. And then after storm events in the distant mountains, torrents suddenly rush down in spate to the sea. And here you can see there's some poor unfortunate lorry drivers that thought they could get their trucks across before the spate arrived and they got stuck in the middle and there they are just about to be swept out to sea. Good news, they were rescued. A guy went in with a caterpillar truck and he managed to lift them off. They climbed into the scoop and he wheeled them to safety and the minute afterwards those two trucks were swept out into the Red Sea. So that's, uh, that's the nature of spate. In addition, um, and very importantly, there are aquifers. There are shallow seasonal aquifers and also extensive stores of ancient groundwater in the deeper aquifers. This groundwater, some of it tens of thousands of years old, is one of the great wealths of Yemen. One important thing to note about these water resources is that almost all of them are what I would call naturally decentralized ones. Rainfall in the soil profile is local, springs are essentially local, most of the aquifers are local, spate flows are local. All these sources of water are local, locally developed, and locally managed. And this theme of the local nature of water resources, as a kind of natural decentralization, is vitally important, as we shall see. In fact, Yemen, you could say more broadly, is a naturally decentralized country. Geography and topography have broken the country up into thousands of little valleys and isolated settlements with very difficult access. Socio-political structures are also quite decentralized. Society and politics are strongly influenced by the physical environment and by the related social and political structures of the clan and the tribe. Power, adherence and organization have traditionally been local and centrifugal tendencies predominate. Loyalties to the family, to the clan, the community, the tribe, the tribal confederation, and then only after that, to the state. And that state is held loosely together by a system of patronage and coercion. So in terms of water resources, geography, and political and social institutions, there's a high degree of natural decentralization and a related, very strong centrifugal tendency. These factors have always combined with weak central governance to leave power, loyalty, and responsibility predominantly at the local level. 
In this context, Yemen has a long tradition of sustainable local water management and local water services. Over the past 3,000 years, Yemenis have developed their water resources in numerous ingenious and laborious ways. Driven by water scarcity and by an apparent progressive increase in aridity over the centuries, Yemenis refined systems of spate irrigation, terrace agriculture, and water harvesting. Dams impounded water, and weirs were constructed to divert it. Springs were harnessed, and the water shared out. Shallow hand-dug wells drew out groundwater sustainably. Elaborate tunnels were dug to bring water from the mountains to supply the needs of towns and gardens and peri-urban irrigation. Every village had its own water supply, sometimes with the sort of elaborate uh, water harvesting um, uh, technology that you see with the cistern in the highlands. And then through conflict and its resolution, rules were worked out within communities to govern all shared water resources. Then from the 1970s onwards came rapid modernization, the rapid growth of commercial agriculture in response to rising demand and the availability of remittances to finance investment, and the inevitable rise of cut, the soft drug enjoyed by all Yemenis, often on a daily basis. This agricultural change led to a boom in rural prosperity on a scale never before seen, and it also led to the related development of groundwater resources. Particularly notable was the eruption of the tube well, which allowed pumping of water from deep aquifers for the first time. On the plus side, this provided a, an apparently heaven-sent supply of abundant water on tap under farmers' own land. But on the minus side, it led to widespread appropriation and privatization of the resource. It led to change in upstream, downstream water rights, for example, with springs drying up, aquifers being drained. And as we shall see, it led to rapid over-exploitation and the exhaustion of aquifers. The truth is that traditional water governance systems made no provision for the tube well. So deep groundwater has been subject to the law of capture. Whoever drills gets it. And there's been pervasive competitive overpumping in a race to the bottom. In addition, with low diesel prices and the plentiful availability of low-cost capital, there was little incentive to efficient use, so water productivity remained extremely low. Look at the way that this fellow is irrigating. And much of the precious water resource was wasted. Also, most of this deep groundwater is fossil, non-renewable water laid down long ago. As a result, when it's pumped out, it's gone for good. And here you see an indication of extreme water scarcity. You see tanker water, which is incredibly expensive, being brought to a terrace to irrigate cut. It's a sign of extreme desperate water shortage. What exactly is the water crisis in Yemen? First, we should insist that there have been great benefits of the groundwater boom. The rapid development of groundwater resources has undoubtedly brought considerable benefits to the national and rural economy. It's kept rural areas alive and has stemmed the rate of urbanization. But it's also resulted in a looming crisis. The accessible aquifers are under extreme stress from overpumping. Water tables are falling fast and ancient springs have run dry. The rate of groundwater extraction is currently twice the rate of aquifer recharge and is on the rise. And the old water rules could not be applied to deeper groundwater extraction. Groundwater proved to be an open access resource where a variant of the tragedy of the commons emerged. Everybody has an incentive to pump out as much of the resource as possible before their neighbour does. 
Now, because this water is largely a finite resource, the exhaustion of groundwater in many locations is already a fact. Unless decisive change occurs, groundwater reserves in all major areas are likely to be depleted in the coming decades. And this overdraft has created an inequitable redistribution of the resource and an, in an inequitable sharing of the costs of depletion. This has led to social and political tensions and conflict and has harmed particularly the poor. Tensions have also increased between town, which needs the water, and country and agriculture, which have the predominant use of it. And there is conflict over access to these dwindling water resources. We should perhaps in passing here also note two other very important aspects of the crisis. The first is the low level of access to clean, potable water in rural areas. Only about one-third of rural people have access to safe water within a quarter of a mile from their homes. And for many women and girls, the daily trudge to and from the spring or the well can take up to eight hours. The second aspect of the crisis is the chronically poor water and sanitation services in towns, where in most cities only about 40% of households are connected to the network. Most people, particularly, to the, particularly the poor, have to buy water from tankers at 10 times the cost of network water. And here you see a pretty little tanker filling up at maybe 10 kilometers away from the city and trucking in small quantities, so very expensive water. And even connected households don't get water every day. We can cite the case of Taiz, where water comes only once every 40 days through the tap. However, sadly, we don't have time to go into those two aspects of the crisis. We're going to concentrate on water resources and the predominant agricultural use of water. Uh, just a quick word about the political economy. I think maybe Helen might say a little bit more about this. But essentially, the, the rapid over-exploitation of Yemen's water has to be set within the very special characteristic political economy. I'm going to skip m most of this here because otherwise it's going to be too long. But essentially, the story is that a weak government used the development of groundwater to favour the powerful. I think that's the summary. Agriculture took the lion's share of the water. For a while, the agricultural economy boomed and everybody became better off. However, water, land and profits passed increasingly into the hands of supporters of the regime, particularly the sheikhs and the military. And a combination of market forces, government promotion and the absence of groundwater governance, together with the slanted political economy of the nation, led to dramatic levels of over-allocation of water to agriculture, inequitable distribution of that water and rapid pleasure of groundwater resources. Those are the components of the crisis. So what are the responses to the crisis? First, we're going to look at what government has tried to do over the last 20 years. They essentially, there's a national water strategy, and it says do four things. One is to decentralize management to local areas and bring in farmers and others as stakeholder partners. Secondly, to recognize existing water rights, but then to regulate uh, water use. Thirdly, to promote water conservation through the pricing system, through the economic incentive structure. And finally, to promote water efficiency in use, uh, to make irrigation more efficient in, in, in particular. There was the progress so far on these four approaches. First, regarding decentralized management and stakeholder partnership, you've got some basin committees and basin plans and all the good integrated water resource management practice. They're in place, there are education programs being undertaken. But there's been no effective decentralization 
And I, I think it would be safe to say no impact whatever on the management of water or the conservation of water in this country. Regarding the second approach, regulation, attempts to regulate water development and extraction through licensing have been made, but illegal drilling, as you see here, often blatant within 100 yards of the main road out of the capital, or even within the capital, illegal drilling by ministers, etc., has continued almost everywhere. Overall, top-down regulation has lacked the political clout and the governance and institutional structures to be effective in the Yemeni context. Water rights remain de facto in the hands of the owners of the more than 100,000 wells in the country, and the behaviour of almost no well owner has been affected by attempts at regulation <coughs> so far. And the third approach attempts to change the incentive structure of included peri periodic increases in the fuel price so that pump pumping becomes more expensive and the farmers have uh, an incentive to conserve water. But uh, these attempts to raise the diesel price have encountered very stiff opposition from vested interests. They've led to murderous riots. And also they've had widespread impacts on all sectors of the economy well beyond the water sector through the, the use of diesel in transport. Generally, they've had a highly negative impact concentrated on the poor. And finally, the attempts to promote water use efficiency have been principally through subsidising investments. And you can here see these are some trees, and here you can see drip irrigation, which is dropping tiny little amounts of water just sufficient to keep the tree going at the optimal level. But this approach has been very muted in its aspect, in its, in its impact. As a subsidy, it's not been very efficient. Uh, it essentially subsidises a private good. It's very costly. It's skewed to the better off because it's skewed to the people who have land and trees and wells and so on. And it's also not being conclusively demonstrated to actually reduce water consumption because the farmer may well use the water elsewhere or somebody else will. So to summarise, what are the lessons from this experience of government strategy so far? First, that collaborative water management shows potential, but the government hasn't actually succeeded in assisting it. Second, top-down regulation may be effective, but only as a complement to bottom-up initiatives by the community. Thirdly, the government's advantage definitely doesn't lie in trying to regulate, but in setting and implementing an enabling framework for community action. Fourthly, that changes in the incentive structure are quite a blunt instrument and can only have an impact if uh, they're associated with um, other measures. And finally, Support to increasing water use efficiency needs to be combined with collective action for sustainable management of the resource, otherwise farmers will simply use the water saved elsewhere. Now we come to the heart of the argument. Uh, we've heard about the limited impacts of government efforts. Uh, the question is, how do local people actually respond to the crisis? Here the question is, whose problem is it anyway? In truth, as we were saying earlier, the 100,000 well owners and the rural water users are the real resource managers. And so it's essentially their problem. It's not the, the government's problem primarily. Evidently, rural people have been slower to adapt to water scarcity than they were earlier to abundance. However, I guess the question is, is there evidence that local people can do more to manage their own resource? What evidence is there that Yemenis have the capacity to adjust their water management behavior towards more sustainable patterns. The book, the thick book, 
looks at lessons from many, many case studies of recent experience of adaptation to the challenge of water scarcity. These case studies essentially uh, illustrate three aspects of local water management. One is adaptive capacity. Can people change their governance system and change the rules, um, or are they stuck forever in the time-honoured ones? Secondly, can communities within themselves resolve conflict over water? And thirdly, can the community act together for resource management and water use? So let me illustrate whether these things exist by, just by examples. And the first one was very kindly given by Helen way back, quite a long time ago. It's the, ex the experience of Asina in the Taizia. There, the village water supply was threatened when farmers from the next village proposed to drill wells right up to the village boundary. The Asina Community uh, Water Supply Committee quickly bought a patchwork of fields in the neighbouring village's land. And they drilled wells in each field and then, then they capped those wells. Then they evoked an old customary law that no well could be drilled within 500 paces of an existing one. The capped wells counted and the Asina water supply was secure. From this and from many other examples, it's clear that adaptive capacity for community water management does exist and that adaptation may be triggered by specific conditions or events. Second, regarding conflict, conflict resolution. Community conflict resolution mechanisms exist all across Yemen, very well documented. Let me give you one example from the village of Al-Karifa. The villagers had established a rule no well within one kilometre of their existing drinking water well. The public water supply agency marched in one day and said, we are going to bring you network drinking water and we're going to drill the well here. The village committee protested that this would not be sustainable or affordable, where the public agency proposed to drill was only 400 metres from the existing well. The public agency went ahead and began to drill. The village armed themselves and drove the rig from the site. That's an example of a very typical Yemeni conflict resolution. <laughs> the third one is capability for resource management and collective action. The variety of experience makes it clear that the local community groupings of many different kinds have the potential for collective, collective action on water management. Let me give you the example of uh, the villages of Adul Naib. Uh, they saw the problem of wells drying up in other parts of Qadas district and they formed a water management committee. Their rules were priority to drinking water and no well drilling or deepening <coughs> except by common agreement. One farmer drilled a well the whole community turned out and they filled the well in. I think it's true to say that by far the strongest rule base uh, in water has always been at the local level. Every community across the country has evolved complex rules for water management. As the examples of Asina, Al-Karifa and Adhaneb show, new or old local rules will be adopted or adapted uh, where they are found useful and practicable. In some cases, even public rules may be invoked to provide backup to local water management, which leads me to a related question. What is the role of outside agencies if co local collective action is the best approach? What is the role of outside agencies? Is there scope for public or non-governmental organisation intervention? Interestingly, many of the examples in the book show that communities are very wary of public intervention, but they're actually quite happy to instrumentalise it when they see an advantage to it. 
Let me give you an example. In uh, Asayani, in Ib, a farmer drilled a well upstream of the village, breaking the local 500-meter rule, but the villagers were ashamed to fight with someone in their own community, <coughs> even though he'd broken the rule. So they brought in the National Water Resources Authority as an independent arbiter, and the authority's agent actually was able to broker an agreement that the well would be recognized, provided that it was used largely for village water supply. It's an example of local people instrumentalizing public rules and public agencies where um, it's useful to them. Clearly, public agencies or NGOs could greatly help community water management initiatives, provided that their support role was correctly defined. And community action on water management could be fostered by a support program that listened and helped in a flexible and responsive way. From all this, what's a possible way forward? Past years of trial have shown that it's local people, not the government, who really control Yemen's water resource. And therefore, local stakeholders have to devise local and local location-specific solutions, rules, regulations, and incentives. Local action can be supported, but probably not initiated by outside agencies. And planning has to be built in with the, the local level and outside agencies working in concert. The first step could be to redefine the role of outside agencies and set up an enabling framework. A process for supporting community water governance could be implemented in a series of steps, starting by selecting areas where communities are ready, where there's an organizational infrastructure, beginning the support process with stakeholder training and with a participatory water assessment, linking in public programs to community efforts, etc. This approach is feasible, but it requires political commitment. In particular, it requires a willingness by government to surrender the pretense of control and a willingness by government to empower local people. Conclusions from all that. It's clear that the government and all Yemenis have to work together to mitigate the impacts of in inevitable water scarcity and to effect structural change to a less water-dependent economy. There's no solution to Yemen's water crisis. Demand will continue to far exceed supply, and the depletion of natural capital will oblige difficult adjustments. Managing the transition to extreme scarcity and avoiding conflict at the local level will be an obligation of all Yemenis. What are the conclusions? What do we do? What do the Yemeni people and the Yemeni government do? First, it seems to me that the only way forward is for local communities to take responsibility and to be helped to take responsibility for their own problems. Yemenis have shown through experience that where local communities take charge, they stand a chance at least of recovering some control over their water resource and of providing more sustainable and equitable water services to local people. Of course, there are many constraints to this, not least local power balances. But again, experience has shown that issues of local power are best resolved at the local level. Second, it seems to me that there's a vital role for government too in soft power, in empowering local people to find their own solutions, in providing knowledge, advice, and support to local initiatives, and in investment, in supporting locally conceived and implemented projects. Here's some Gabion structures in a, in a, in a wadi bed for wadi training. In locally conceived and implemented projects for equitable and sustainable water management and services, providing expertise, providing co-investment capital grants, etc. <laughs> Government can obviously help strengthen local drinking water services by supporting the bottom-up approach, 
and local responsibility, ensuring the water resource and the technology are sustainable and affordable. This is actually the amazing thing of fog collection in Hadja. One community managed to get water enough for five months of the year, simply potable water from, from collecting it on, this, on these fog um, webs. Government can also help to improve urban water services, for example, by bringing in the local private sector on an equitable and sustainable basis, testing innovative new technologies and public-private partnership approaches, and very importantly, by devising equitable arrangements for transferring water from rural areas for urban water supply. But it will also be the responsibility of the government to work on mitigating the underlying causes of scarcity as far as possible and to plan for the structural transition of the economy in the longer term, a move to a less water-intensive economy, to encourage development of settlements closer to water resources, to help reduce the rapid growth of the population, all this in the prospect of a more sustainable future. The challenge for Yemen is, is to build on the nation's traditions and common sense to break the runaway groundwater mining of the past three decades and to return resource management towards the age-old balance reflected in that luminous hadith, cultivate your world as if you would live forever and prepare for the hereafter.